Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, my monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 126 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. Behind me right now, you're hearing a piece called Making a Documentary from the album Earnest Rubbish, which was the first collaboration between sound artists Matthew Rivera and Vanessa Rosetto. It came out in 2016 on Erstwhile. Matthew and Vanessa's work together traces back to their activities in and around Graham Lampkin's now-defunct Kai imprint, and both have gone on to put out a number of compelling solo releases in recent years that combine elements of music concrete, sound poetry, electroacoustic composition, and more fractured song forms. And this week, Matthew and Vanessa are set to release their second collaborative release on Erstwhile, a sprawling 75-minute piece called Everyone Needs a Plan. And on this installment of the show, I'll be chatting with both Vanessa and Matthew separately about their solo work, about their shared appreciation for voice and narrative elements within their sound work, and about collaborating together on their latest release. And you'll hear those conversations throughout the show, along with some selections from their solo catalogs and a couple of lengthy excerpts from Everyone Needs a Plan. And in this first hour here, I'll be joined by Vanessa... But before I get into the interview segments, I thought I'd start off by playing some of her solo material from one of her more recent releases entitled Fashion Tape. Here's a track called Fake Cheese. Thank you. 
What if I keep referencing escape for a reason? Do you feel culpability?
I thought I'd, I'd start by asking you a pair of similar questions that I asked Chris Cole when I had her on the show a while back, because uh, I find it quite interesting how people arrive at working with or appreciating more abstract forms of music or sound. So first, you know, were you an avid listener of more conventional types of music prior to gaining an appreciation for sound in this more kind of unadorned sense? And I guess secondly, can you pinpoint any experiences or maybe even certain recordings that were pivotal in terms of opening you up to like how sound could be created and used outside of these more conventional musical contexts? Uh, I, did, I did, of course, listen to music my whole life, but I wouldn't say that I was an unusually avid listener any more than an average person probably. Um, but I, I've always liked a wide variety of types of music rather than, you know, just certain genres. I've always had, like, a, a broad range of, of music that interested me. Uh, in terms of pinpointing uh, experiences that, that affected my, what I ended up doing now, I would say that when, as a child I was always very interested in sound effects records and collected those and would listen to them uh, as music, <laughs> right. much to the chagrin of my family. <laughs> and uh, so that was probably the, the biggest thing that at the time didn't seem significant, but looking back on it now, I can see definitely affected um, the way that I look at it music today sure sure so did you like in terms of like sound effects were you also into just sounds soundtracks and scores for films also i didn't really have a lot of that kind of stuff uh, i probably would have been if i had had it i didn't grow up in a house where there was a lot of musical listening at all i had to i remember asking my mother to get a record player when i was i think five or six, because she never had anything like that around. We didn't have even a radio in the house or anything. Mm. So uh, I remember asking her to get that, and I we signed up for the Columbia Records and Tape Club. <laughs> yeah. And because my mother was not a big music listener, she, we would go through and we would select choices every time you would get you know, the little catalog, and it was gone basically off of the titles if they sounded interesting <laughs> to her. So we ended up with some really disparate uh, selections yeah, do <laughs> for you, that reason. Someone asked me that not too long ago, like what was my, because we were talking about the Columbia Record Club and asking about the first thing. And I don't really recall, do you recall what your first uh, like album was that you got through that service? Oh my gosh! I know that we did the thing where you got like twelve. Yes, yeah. For a penny, it was like <laughs> I remember like going through and we picked them. Like I said, based on the names, so we ended up with a uh, ZZ Top Fandango is the one that really sticks out in my mind because my mother thought Fandango sounded like it would be 
exciting. Very exotic, right? <laughs> very exotic. Yeah, album. very exotic. Not at all <laughs> what you know what she expected, but right, right. Well, your background was in painting and, and visual art, so I was wondering what compelled you then to start working with sound and, and composing. I think of them as being very similar in a lot of ways in terms of my intentions as well as my working methods um, of building up very thin, transparent layers of thickness that it feels appropriate to me. And I think I just had got, I felt like I'd maybe hit a dead end uh, in painting mm-hmm. and I wanted to try something different. And it was around that time that I became familiar with the IHM forum mm-hmm. online, oh, yeah. if you, if you yep, I recall hate music. that. I hate music, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went on there and there were a lot of people talking about really interesting work that was being done and I kind of went from there in terms of uh, creating things myself. Sure. Do you do you still paint actively, or is that something that you've put on the back burner since moving into working with sound? I was uh, painting actively up until about two years ago, and I injured my hand, and it became difficult for me to do that. But um, it's pretty much healed up now, and I have started up again. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, I'm approaching it with... Uh, a new excitement that uh, I had lost for a while there. So it's it's kind of interesting how that's worked out. Coming back with kind of a a fresh set of eyes. Yeah, a fresh fresh perspective. Yeah, Yeah. excellent. Exactly. Well, in this article about your sound work that appeared on the Fluid Radio website last year, you had stated in this article, uh, quote, I find myself more busy now, uh, so usually I will just record when I hear interesting things as I go about my normal business, and I really think I've been capturing better, more serendipitous things doing it this way. So I was wondering, do you feel that by adopting this type of approach that your work has become more personal to you versus, I guess, going out and sort of trying to intentionally you know, find or force these types of recordings, these field recordings? Um, yeah, I think my work has always been really personal because the first pieces that I made of this type were made up of sounds that I recorded in my house. Mm-hmm. So it's always been very much uh, a personal thing. But I, I, I think that what's been interesting about it is because I don't necessarily care as much about the sounds in and of themselves as a lot of people working in this area do. I, it's more important to me that the sounds that I capture are can be made to serve a narrative. So um, in, in having that human element, it's been useful to me to take the approach of going out and listening all the time because you never know what you may happen upon that you can quickly take advantage of, and you never know when those instances will arise. If you try to... Um, go out specifically looking for things, I think it's much more difficult to, to find mm-hmm. something interesting than if you just are kind of always, like, scanning your environment. Yeah. Are you one to carry around a, a recorder everywhere you go? I used to do that, uh, but it takes too long to fumble around, dig out your recorder. So, you know, the recorder that I have is a Zoom. It starts up very slowly, and by the time you get it going, whatever it was is probably over sure. so i just mostly record with my phone now because it's always right there right in your hand or like you know easily grabbable 
So yeah, it yeah. seems like it's a lot easier to do that. Yeah. Well, you, some of your uh, response to that question kind of, uh, I guess, segues into what I wanted to ask here, because one aspect of your work that I, that I do find quite intriguing is that it seems to capture these kind of both private and public aspects of your life without being necessarily overly revealing at all. And this this ambiguity allows people to form their own interpretation or maybe their own narrative, as you, you were suggesting. Um and there's this example that I like. There are these like recurring scenes in some of your work of people discovering being recorded out in public that I kind of find it's playful, but it's almost a little bit uneasy uh, too when you hear these people finding out like, hey, are you recording me? What are you doing? So I wanted to ask you, have you encountered any like confrontational moments when recording like that out in public or are people kind of curious what what you're doing? I've been pretty lucky that people generally have been nice uh, and are just curious about what it is that I'm doing. I think it's because it's not necessarily a medium that people are as familiar with as if you were, like, taking a picture or filming them. Right. Um, there's more people doing stuff like that than just, you know, the rec- recording sound. Uh, and especially now, too, that I mostly record in public with my phone. It's a lot more stealth. People right. don't really think anything about a person walking around holding their phone. That's true, right? But um, because of that hidden, you know, the hidden aspect of it, it makes me think about the ethics of doing this kind of work mm-hmm. uh, when you're recording people who don't realize that they're being recorded. Um, it, I wouldn't record someone with the intent of using their voice to mock them in any way or anything like that. I think that would be really wrong. Right, uh, right. Yeah, I think that it's important to think about the the way you're treating your unwitting subjects. <laughs> right. When you when you record them. Well, right, and like I like I do feel that with even when there is you know speaking elements and, and things where you're clearly interacting with people in public, it's kind of ambiguous, but also very anonymous. I mean, it, you wouldn't really assume anything or any deep emotions that people are having. They just seem to be curious more than anything. Yeah. I think you have to have a love for your subjects, too, like the people that you're depicting, uh, in order to depict them with, with respect that they deserve.
Well, in an article entitled Invisible Narratives, it was published in 2013, and it was in this publication called Surround. It was actually Matthew Rivera who, who wrote at length about the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the evolution of your sound work uh, up to that point. And, and in it, he describes the role of voice, I guess what we're kind of talking about here, within your work. And you went on to say that, um, quote, I always want that visible humanity in things, visible mark making. I do not want to shy away from the emotional content which I believe can be very well served by the use of voices. And I think that there's been an avoidance of vocalization in some musics that I like, and I think that's unfortunate because of the loss of that expressive potential. And I'll take a deep breath. That was a long quote. I apologize. (laughs) But I was, yeah, I first wanted to ask you, do you think that uh, a lot of things that get filed under this quote-unquote experimental music tag lack some of that expressive potential that you noted? Uh, yes, I do. I think that there's a lot of people working in this area of music that place more emphasis on form over content uh, in general and definitely um, downplay emotional content in their work. And, and I feel like Matthew and I have found common ground in rejecting this approach. It, it, it seems... Like, it's, it's maybe, like, a less popular uh, approach to take nowadays than, than I feel like it, it could and should be. And I think a lot of people are um, they're wasting the potential uh, that, that can be found in, in addressing things in this manner. Yeah, was that, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you mentioned that that was kind of a link that you had. Was that something that you discussed early on in terms of, what you two wanted to achieve together in terms of your collaboration is using more of that. Yes, yeah, it was always it was always very important to us that uh, that that content be there. Well, you and Matthew performed together at that Kai showcase at Issue Project Room in New York. I think it was 2014, I believe it was. Um, did that live performance sort of lay the groundwork for what would later become Ernest Rubbish, your first collaborative release together on Erstwhile? It was a, that performance was very important to us, and it was a, a critical event in our collaborative life. But I think the groundwork for Ernest Rubbish and now for for Plan was being laid from the beginning of his and my interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, we had always talked about working together, and uh, I think that from the from the very like outset, that groundwork was already being laid. But yes, the use of voice in that performance. I don't know if you've heard any recordings of it or anything. But no, I there's haven't. a lot of uh, voice used in that performance. Yeah, I, that I, does kind of carry over. Did you and Matthew first um, come to collaborate through? I believe his uh, he contributed some artwork to some of your early stuff on Kai Records. Was that where you two first crossed paths? Then um, I had met him online. And I was working on preparing Exotic Exit, and I needed a design, and I knew that he was an extremely talented designer, and we had already become friends. And I asked him if he would like to try to to come up with something for me. And uh, I don't think that would have... Was that the first thing that we did? It might have been. We, I also helped him recording some uh, sounds for, like, book trailers for his books. I can't remember which of those 
would have technically been chronologically first, but it, it was definitely like the very early, earliest days of our interacting. Well, your brand new album together called Everyone Needs a Plan, it's due out, I, it should be this week, correct, on Erstwhile? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Be. I think, yeah, it, just looking at the release date or the information, it, it should be, by the time this airs, it should be readily available to people to pick up. So, um, but, you know, in this work, you really push this idea um, of narrative-driven composition, I would say even further than the last release, kind of taking full advantage of the CD format by assembling this, you know, basically a continuous 75-minute piece. And obviously you two are working from separate continents, so I was wondering if you could just provide a general description of how you two collaborated on such, I mean, an extensive piece of music together. It came together really surprisingly quickly. And I think that's mostly because of the strong framework that Matthew built, which uh, I think he'd probably be able to elaborate a bit better than I could on how he did that. Um, but essentially what we did is we got the shape built to its full length and then we passed it back and forth and worked on it until we felt satisfied with how it had been fleshed out, which is how we made Ernest Rubbish also, except with that, I created the original shape. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so we, we kind of traded off this time. So that's essentially, you, you basically had a, a, a structure in mind um, in terms of laying out some of the components that would, would uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, fill up that structure. Yes. Okay. Yes, like to create a, like an overall shape um, for, the, for the piece. But to me, the, the thing that was interesting about it is um, the, the voice recordings that you hear in it were actual communications between us that existed separately to the music that Matthew then assembled uh, those into the form that it, it took okay, uh, so. in its final final shape. So in ter- so are you saying that, were these things that you were just um, kind of narrating as you were listening to it, or was this con- were these conversations that you were having back and forth with one another while that was oh yes, there were real there were real conversations okay. that we were we record messages, uh, spoken messages, and send them back and forth to oh. one another, and they they were uh, he then cut them up and assembled them into, okay. the, into the shape that they have now. Yeah, yeah, I kind of got that feeling that these were like it almost felt like la- late night voice messages. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what they were. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it wasn't like scripted or planned in any way. It was just you know us recording sure, messages yeah. to one another. <laughs> and then he, it, it, was, it took a lot, a significant amount of paring down to get it even to the 75 minutes. It was probably hundreds of, hundreds of minutes. Of, sure, of yeah. Well, were there any specific ideas or themes that guided this work from the outset, or did certain things just reveal themselves as you were working on the recording? To me, the, the record is about people learning how to communicate rather than to merely talk. And the type of language that passes between people who are in circumstances where talking is the only medium available to them. So that's what it, it, it's about overall to me. It's about communication. Well, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play the opening sequence of Everyone Needs a Plan, where I think your voice is featured quite prominently in that, and let people hear that. And then when Matthew joins me, on the second half, I'll play kind of his section and where there's some of that overlapping elements at play. 
So I'm going to play it here. And I, Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat and get into some of the details about this new record, which is fantastic, by the way. Oh, thank you very much.
water.
coming. Oh, <laughs> 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 
I'm here with Matthew Rivere, and um, thank you, Matthew, for uh, taking the time here to chat a little bit about some of your solo work and uh, this new release 
that you have coming out with uh, Vanessa Rosetto. So I wanted to start off by asking, you know, I was listening to this interview that you did with fellow sound artist Steve Flatto uh, from last year, I believe it was. And, and in it, I was actually surprised to learn that you were making music at a much younger age. Uh, but to paraphrase you a bit, you weren't really satisfied uh, with the results and you didn't, re- didn't really go anywhere. So I was curious to know, you know, if these were all solo attempts uh, to make music when you started and what later led you back to making music again? It's kind of a cyclical thing in the end. I mean, yeah, I, I started off um, completely focused on music and you know, from my early teens up into my early 20s, I was putting a lot of work into it. But um, I had to eventually just concede that I didn't have anything musically to say that hadn't already been said. I, I was parroting and I wasn't... I, I was doing a, a mediocre job of it. I, was, I, was, I realised um, I was creating work that would sit comfortably within the expectations of the certain styles of music I was making, but said nothing else. And, of course, as a result, it didn't really gain much traction. There were a couple of small um, CDR labels back at the time who did some releases and things like that, but it's not work... I hesitate to say I'm not proud of it, um, but it's definitely not work that really speaks to who I am in any way. And, And what I really came to learn was... I value honesty in what I listen to and what I do, and I wasn't really being honest in any of that music, and it was mostly solo work. I wasn't um, working in bands or anything like that. It was just, I was listening to a lot of uh, electroacoustic music and noise, and I've always been a big fan of metal as well, and I was playing with all these styles of music, but not in a way that hadn't already been done much better by other people. So eventually I... I guess you could say I became, not jaded, because I did it to myself. It wasn't like I was was at the mercy of of record labels who didn't appreciate me. There was nothing to appreciate. (laughs) And I I began to appreciate that about myself. So I started writing, and that was done purely as an escape from music. It wasn't with an intention to ever seek publication or to even identify myself as a writer. I just wanted to try something new. And I was writing like, stupid little stories that I would send to a handful of friends just to hopefully make them laugh. And one of those friends, I didn't know this, but they'd been thinking of starting up a, a publishing company. And they mentioned that they would like to release a collection of my, of my work that I was doing. And that kind of blew me away. And so for the next few years I, I changed my focus toward writing and, and I found that with writing I was able to immediately tap upon something more resembling my own voice that I was with music at the time so I, I focused on that and I still loved music and I listened to it a lot but I, I really to a large extent stopped pursuing the creation of it mm-hmm. and in hindsight I think that was actually really important for me in order to eventually come back to music and actually feel like I had something to say because I guess you could say music block started me writing and then eventually it was writer's block that started me making music again <laughs> so that's that, that's why I, it's a cyclical thing sure because um, yeah I, I had finished writing 
um, Basil Ganglia, I think it was the, the, the last, that was a real torturous book to write. That took me a long time and it was very taxing. And after that, I, I felt completely spent and I was thinking about new novel ideas and I, I tried writing some preliminary drafts and they kept falling short and, and I, I sort of ran out of words and I didn't know how to continue doing it. So I had an old Tascam 4-track, which my sister had given me for Christmas when I was a about 15 I think it was and I just started making these really ramshackle sort of bricolage things that were just meant to be purely for me and when I listened back to them I thought oh wow this is the first time I've listened to something I've done and hear myself in it and that was quite exciting for me Mm -hmm. so I I guess that's sort of how it, it transpired well, both your design work and your sound work were closely tied to Graham Lampkin's Kai label, at least in terms of this sort of small area of music that, that's our primary focus here. And I can say that's where I discovered your work. And, and looking back through the Kai catalog, I was wondering, and I, I, w- I asked this question of Vanessa too, if Exotic Exit was the first album that marked, I guess, your contribution to the label. I think I asked her if it was your first uh, collaboration together, and she wasn't sure if it was that or some other stuff. But I wanted to ask, yeah, was that your first contribution to Kai? And I guess, how did your involvement with that label influence or further your own artistic practices? So yeah, Kai had obviously been enormously important to me. And and this is before I had anything to do with them. I I was a fan of of Kai and, and Graham's work in particular, both solo and with um, Shadowring. So it was um, always a label that I was aware of. I never thought that I would have anything to do with them because by this stage I was solely immured in the writing world and I was still a fan of music, but that was more on the periphery and I would never think there'd be much crossover between those two worlds at that point. But um, Vanessa contacted me out of the blue one day and she had seen some of the book designs I'd been posting and something about those must have spoken to her because she had interest in me designing the Exotic Exit LP. And and that was enormously exciting to me at the time because I'd never had an opportunity to design any LPs before and um, I'd always wanted to. So I thought this was a really great chance to, to finally remove myself from the, the world of pure book design and start to expand what I was doing. And, and that's when Vanessa and I really started talking. We might have had some cursory communication before that. We were both on, both on the I Hate Music forums mm-hmm. even before that. I, I didn't know it was her until later when we said, oh, that's you. Um, but, yeah, we were on the same forum. So we were sort of in the same world, but we didn't start communicating until after I was made this offer to design exotic exit and at this time that was all done by Vanessa I didn't really have anything to do with Graham uh, I would submit designs to Vanessa and, and when it was happy she just sent it to Graham and Graham was happy and so that was that was that that marked a really important shift for me because that was when Vanessa and I started to get to know one another and it was also when I had my first sort of fingerprint on Kai but that didn't really develop any further until Jason Lescalate contacted me because he and Graham were releasing the third of third part of their trilogy for erstwhile photographs and it was quite a, a complex package that they wanted to design so I, I had done a little bit of work with Jason before for his label and for various solo releases he had done and he asked if I could help them in terms of, of, of laying this thing out. And 
even at that stage, um, I went through Jason. I didn't really speak to Graham at all. Graham was kind of this mysterious figure in the background. I was always so close yet so far. Um, but it was when I was working on photographs um, that I guess it really started my communication with Graham. Um, because after that was all, all done and dusted, I, I thought I'd just send Graham just a personal message because I hadn't really spoken to him at this stage and said, you know, I'll, it was really fun working on this. I love the release. And, and then we started talking and and eventually we started talking a lot and that's when I started to have more to do with helping him design various Kai releases. Mostly I was just doing layout work for him. He already had the design in mind. He just I helped him lay them out into templates. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that started a friendship with Graham as well. So when Vanessa approached me about Exotic Exit, that really did mark a pretty important point for me. And it ultimately made it possible, I guess, for me to to not just work on new music for the first time, but have a platform for that to be heard. And that was by pure luck because I was just talking to Graham and I mentioned I'd been doing these things. And there, there was no um, ulterior motive there. We'd just been talking a lot and he did express interest in hearing them. And he really liked what he heard. At that stage, he wasn't going to commit to anything because um, he, he always likes to wait until the next release is done before he focuses on the one that comes after. But then eventually he said, I think we just have to face the fact this is going to be a Kai record. And that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, right. so that, that's kind of how that went. So yeah, it was, it was very important when Vanessa contacted me for an exotic exit, both for my communication with her and for my communication with Graham. It really did start a lot of balls rolling. Right, right. Well, Vanessa and I discussed the significance of a voice within her work and in your work together. And I referenced an article that you had actually written uh, about mm. her work. And in that, you state that there is little else that acts to signify humanity in such a direct way. Even when obscured or spoken in another language, the voice is universally understood within the voice beyond the mere content of the words, myriad data is delivered and it is possible to understand the mood of a word without understanding the word itself. So would you say that a, a part of your appreciation for voice maybe comes from your work as a fiction writer in terms of like creating scenes and, and dialogue and the sort of emotional resonance, you know, however uh, fragmentary it may be used in more of an audio sense? Absolutely. Uh, for me, I've reached a point where the two mediums really do go hand in hand. And it's only in hindsight that I realised how important it was for me to step away from music and embrace writing for me to find that. Because I guess I'd always been somebody with a love of language and words, but it wasn't until I started writing that I really put it into focus and realised how important it was to me. So when I did finally come back to music, voice in, in any um, manner of delivery became a really important emotive tool for me because there's so much delivered in the voice. Just, just as that quote that you read back to me, I mean, words, obviously, they contain meaning, but beyond their meaning, they contain so much else, with the tone, the delivery, um, the accent. You, you get so much information, so much emotion, just from any verbal sound. And... To me, that's very exciting and very evocative. And being able to explore that alongside music really was a bit revelatory for me. And I started listening to a lot of sound poetry and um, 
things like that, which which also explored the voice in in different ways, and all these things began to feed into my own appreciation and then my own execution of how I approach the voice. Mm-hmm. Was that present in your earlier work? Was this just when you were starting to come back to music again? It was really when I was starting to come back. In the earlier work, a lot of it was fairly purely sound-based, or um, well, music-based. There was very little voice in there at all. And at the time, I didn't even really consider the use of voice. I was so removed from the notion. It was uh, I was listening to a lot of noise music and a lot of electroacoustic, so it, it was abstract soundscapes that were very... What, what I was doing, I, I found, was very divorced from the human touch, I guess you could say. Um, and voice, I, I don't know, this... I've got this weird thing where I like to listen to films in languages I don't understand and not put the subtitles on. So stare away from the screen and just listen to the sound of the words and the way they're delivered. And that's that's exciting to me. And and it really, yeah, writing was the is, was the thing that allowed this to happen. I, I, I just I'm so thankful for the way it all worked out because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they feed each other so completely. Right, right. Well, this discussion of voice has me wanting to ask me about, or ask you, excuse me, about your latest uh, solo release called Letters to Friends of the Late Darcy O'Meara. I just want to ask a few things, and I realize there's a little bit of a a self-promotional thing going on here because it did come out on uh, Round Bell Recording, so apologies, people, but hey. (laughs) <laughs> in time, you'll be forgiven. That's right. <laughs> but but I think it does actually tie in quite nicely to what we've been discussing here, because on this tape, you've essentially stripped away all of the musical elements that were featured on most of your previous releases, and you've reduced things down to just tape, mic, and voice, and that's it. And I guess without divulging too much information, because I kind of like not knowing all the details, but uh, could you share just kind of the basic framework you were working from uh, from this release and how i guess fiction played a part in that well i was at the time i was thinking a lot about letters i've got this fascination with with one-sided communication or i should be more accurate not one-sided communication but communication wherein you're only privy to one side uh, i like that 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 excites me a lot and so i i just started thinking about the idea of of writing letters and then reading them. At that stage, there was no real narrative framework. It was just the pure idea of correspondence, hearing one side of correspondence. And and so I started writing a couple of letters, and completely fictional, but um, mm-hmm. even though they were fictional letters, I tried to put real emotion into them. So you could maybe, if you heard it back, you would get a sense of this greater history, but not necessarily understand it but hopefully be carried by the emotion of the greater history. And after writing a couple of these letters, I I started to think about the idea of how this might sit into a narrative. And so I decided that it might be interesting to produce an an album where it was a series of letters written by one person to all these different people who all had a relationship to this one person that you never really hear from. And, yeah, that's how the tape was born. Um, once I had the idea in mind, I, I wrote it and recorded it very quickly. And that that really allowed in, in the emotion, I think, to, to hopefully come through in a very real 
and raw way. I, I didn't I didn't rehearse it into oblivion. I think in fact everything on that tape uh, are first takes because I, I wanted it to I wanted to maintain every mistake and I wanted to to capture the the essence of it in a very real way that only that sort of first interaction with it can really bring. Mm-hmm. You mean you can't recreate Dear May every time? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I think that would be an exercise in pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> that just feel... every... <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? I, I feel like that track in particular really draws a response from people. At least when I've played it, they're like, what's happening? <laughs> Why is he laughing hysterically and crying? What's going on? It was a very strange moment recording DMA because that that's something that before I hit record, I could never, ever have predicted the outcome. Um, I just got really carried away by this by this thing. And so, yeah, all of those emotions that happen are actually real. Mm-hmm. And and although there is a performative element to that tape, yeah, the, the emotional manifestation is, is real. And after I recorded that, I, um, I started feeling a little bit uneasy about the notion of that being sent out into the world because it, it almost felt too naked. Mm-hmm. And I, I, but I thought it would be disingenuous not to do it because it seems to me like a pivotal point in that tape. Uh, oh, and yeah. it would be disingenuous to take that out just because it made me uncomfortable. Right. I think it's, an, I mean, it definitely makes you want to flip the tape over and find out what happens on the second side. You know, there's just that peak element there to that. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. In hindsight, I'm very happy with how that happened. There just was a moment of inner struggle after I recorded it yeah. and um, was trying to recover myself. <laughs> but but now I'm, it, it is what it is and people can take it or leave it. So no regrets. <laughs> right, right. One word. 
the Hepburn Square. A yodeled seance. And of course, Mr. Chai with his foster children. Enmity adds togetherness. Togetherness. En enmity. Enmity adds togetherness. Past. I am. Um, I can be contacted. I can always be contacted by reading this assertion. I can be contacted too. Please do so at your earliest convenience. I can assure you that privacy is important. I would only compromise yours to save my own. a short day. Wake tomorrow longer. Without prejudice. Matthew Rivet.
heartbeats, heartbeat.
There's an element of collaboration when it comes to all of your design work that keeps you busy all the time. Um, yeah. But but for the most part, your your creative pursuits are more or less you know solitary endeavors. Mm. So I was wondering what it has been like collaborating with Vanessa, where you are both actively involved in you know composing and producing the material itself. You know, are there takeaways from this process that have spilled back into your own solo work? 
I think definitely there is. I also think that when it comes to collaborating with Vanessa, I, I lucked out a lot because, um, as you mentioned, I don't tend to collaborate. Most of what I do is solo. And in the design context, it's, it's you know, a very business-oriented transaction. So I, I'm more inclined just to follow orders, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to these other pursuits uh, where I might have a higher stake in the outcome, yeah, I, I don't know whether I've been drawn primarily to solo work because I want this control or just because I'm bad at meeting people, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when, when I've been working with Vanessa, it's happened very naturally. Um, we first really collaborated when we performed together in New York a number of years ago, and that collaboration started, you know, in our separate continents. We were working on the live show, and then we performed it, and that felt very easy and natural to do. And so while there, we recorded a lot of um, raw material that would then become Earnest Rubbish. And Earnest Rubbish came together very quickly. And we just felt that that momentum that we had from having worked live together needed to be carried on. And yeah, it, it did. It came together very, very easily. I, I think maybe with Earnest Rubbish, I took a little bit more of a hands-off approach. Not hands-off in as much as I don't have impact on the release, but I, I didn't try to impose my will upon the final product as much as I, I as I normally would. And I'm very happy with how that, that came out. But then when we take it further to everyone needs a plan, um, I, I feel if I learnt anything from previous collaborations, it was, you know, don't be... Don't hold back. You know, if something isn't isn't right, then trust the other person to to vocalise it and and take that advice on board um, respectfully. And once again, everybody needs a plan. I mean, it's it's a long, long release, but that did also come together very organically. I don't think the majority of collaborative situations really think have that organic flow to it that I've enjoyed. So I still, in many ways don't feel I understand what it's like to collaborate very much just because of how easy my experience has been. <laughs> sure, mm. sure. Well, <clears throat> one aspect of this uh, this new release, Everyone Needs a Plan, that I really like is how there are these separate sections that feature snippets of Vanessa's voice and then there's your voice. And then gradually it develops into this sort of overlapping uh, dialogue between you two. And, and Vanessa explained that a little bit, what that was, you know, messages that you were kind of getting bouncing back and forth mm. and there's definitely one thing that i think there's more of in this release than the previous one is there's there's more of um <laughs> for lack of a better word you both in there like you're in it and um like this mm. degree of vulnerability that that you hear come through w would you say that's a part of it and i guess one of the other things i wanted to ask is that Vanessa talked about how you kind of had a a shape in mind or a structure for these things to play out, and if you could just kind of generalize what that's, that what you had in mind for that. Yeah, well, so this this release actually sort of came by surprise when, when we were talking about a follow up to the first erstwhile record we had this idea that we weren't really going to put that much of ourselves in it. We were going to do something that was more fantastical and move away from the, the personal. And, well, that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> um, because, yeah, um, the, the messages that started, that's a very important um, element of this because 
we've been communicating and um, th then there was a decision to, to send all your messages back and this was before there was any concept of of the erstwhile record. We just very earnestly um, sent these messages back and forth and it was after a few of these where it just sort of seemed obvious that this had to be the, the foundation of of the next record. Just this idea of communication and communication evolves and grows and, and, and becomes almost psychic. There was a really great um, um, bit of feedback about the album. I, I want to... I, I, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who said it. Um, I apologise, I can't remember the name right now, but it was um, like eavesdropping on telepathy. Mm -hmm. And I really, really like that feedback because I... Um, for me, when I listened back to it, and, and certainly when it was being put together, it was this idea of of this fractured communication, fractured, stilted, um, mm -hmm. full of silences, becoming just this overflowing volcano of unstoppable communication, and and so that's kind of the the general arc that it took, and that idea came about very early, and it didn't really change at all from the initial. The initial thought. Uh, once that idea was agreed upon, that's what it became. Um, it was just everything that was used to um, to bolster it that mm -hmm. had that evolved and and yeah. So that was a, a very interesting, intense but rewarding process to work on. And, I, um, and for a, a CD of that length, it surprisingly didn't take as as long as it maybe could have because of how organic and fluid the creation of it was yeah right i mean because i had mentioned earlier in in the show i mean this is a 75 minute piece that goes on it builds and builds and builds but yeah there it's interesting though listening to it because you'll get to the end of it and, and it doesn't seem like it's that long it just moves very naturally throughout yeah i sort of um an analogy for me is when you're involved in a, a really great conversation with somebody and then you look up at the clock and go, oh, wow, two hours have passed. Um, it was, like, for me, when I listen back to it, and I'm, and I'm obviously very close to it, so, you know, I have a lot of bias here, but for me, it's like that. Mm -hmm. Like, like listen, I'm being part of, a, of a, a really great conversation and then being surprised by how much time has passed when it's over. Right. Well, of course, the thing that perked my ears up uh, throughout the course of this uh, volcanic gush of conversation, <laughs> or however you <laughs> described it, there, was this long story about Lego catalogs, which I found so <laughs> fascinating because it totally reminded, just a childhood memory popped up of paging through this uh, Christmas catalog and circling, <laughs> circling the things that you wanted. And so... Is, were you a big Lego person? I mean, oh, I'm, I'm, as a, as a child, yeah, Lego was a huge part of my life, and this is before you know I got my first Nintendo and anything like. Lego was the first, the first toy I became utterly obsessed by, and I'm sure that's a very common experience for many boys who grew up in the '80s. Um, there was every year the Lego would release these these catalogs and I remember they cost 40 cents each and inside at that time you know the Lego was separated and things like pirate Lego castle Lego space Lego they all had their themes and in these catalogs you could see each theme and they had these massive dioramas that they'd created of, of all the things from this scene and it was I, I just remember saving up 
for my 40 cents and and buying these catalogs and just obsessively pouring through them just just imagining having these <laughs> these models and, and that's a really lasting memory for me right. it's this like, it, it was almost like i learned a lot about what it meant to not get what you want but also to appreciate <laughs> um just just the the fantasy of <laughs> the fantasy of it anyway right. and that's always always stuck with me and sometimes i get this urge and i don't do it because i just don't have space and i can't really justify it but um sometimes i just want to go out and buy the most ludicrously expensive lego set there is just to <laughs> just as a, like an apology to child me who was deprived yeah. of all of this stuff <laughs> well well, to close things out, I, I thought I'm I'm going to play another section of Everyone Needs a Plan, and I thought I would actually play that segment that has the overlapping voices that we've been discussing. But I thought, you know, maybe before we wrap up, if you could mention any other projects and things you have on the horizon. I, I know you're probably working on like 80 different graphic design things right now. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't tend to include the graphic design when I talk about upcoming projects. That right. would be like um, that would be like an accountant mentioning the, you know, the latest tax that they did. It just wouldn't make any sense. But yeah. in, in terms of, um, of projects, there are a few on the horizon. There's a really exciting one that um, hasn't been announced yet, so I, w I won't mention too much, and I won't say the label, but I very recently did my first live show that included a video projection of a, of a video that I made and one of the people who saw that has a has a label here in Melbourne and expressed an interest in releasing an audiovisual set so it looks at this stage like it will be a DVD CD set one with the video that I made and then mm. one with an extended audio and that um, I'm still working on that but that excites me enormously because mm -hmm. I've never had an opportunity to to do that so that's definitely sort of a bigger project on the horizon um, there's a collaboration which I've, I actually finished this a while ago with um, Eric Goldman Coglu mm -hmm. and um, and that looks set to be um, coming out soonish as well. Um, there's a poetry book that I'm working on with Graham Lampkin as well. So um, looking forward to that because, um, well, obvious reasons. I, I think they're they're kind of the main things at the moment on on my horizon that I'm excited about. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matthew, for taking the time to chat. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. It's been yeah. great. I sat on the floor with this.
holding in some some pain. Out of that time of day, just around the same time, and I'm so happy. More full, you know, glaring lights of day.
I don't want to say confronting, but I was a little like, taken aback a little bit by it. Often in ways that you cannot predict, but especially when people are close. show something that I've written is relevant. Like, almost like, 
grateful to them to have. And that's going to bring this episode to an end. I'd like to thank Vanessa and Matthew once again for taking the time to speak with me on this installment. If you'd like to find out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that you can follow to bring you to each of the releases played. I should note that Everyone Needs a Plan is available to order now through Erstwhile's Bandcamp page. If you have any questions or comments, 
You can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Otherwise, check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening.